I'm going to ask you to find an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. The Old Testament, Psalm 121, and New Testament, 1 Peter 3. You won't, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. You won't need 1 Peter for quite a while, half an hour or so. Uh, we're going to begin in Psalm 121. We have recited a portion of this psalm already. We have sung a portion of this psalm. And now I invite you, encourage you to follow along as I read it in its entirety. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Our first order of business is to understand this psalm. What is the psalmist saying? Then we want to build a bridge, construct a bridge between the psalmist and us. And then we want to apply it. That's how we're going to approach things this day. Again, we need to begin by being very clear on what the psalmist is saying. That's called interpretation. And then we want to bridge the gap, the chasm between the psalmist's day and our day. We're on different sides of the cross. And then we want to apply it. So we begin with the psalmist's meaning, the psalmist's intent. Psalm 121 divides naturally into three sections. The first section, number one, the psalmist's question. Verse one, I lift up my eyes, so I look up. To where? To the hills. From where does my help come? Grammatically, grammatically, there are two possible meanings. The psalmist might be identifying the hills as the place where he will find help. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, located in the hill country. The temple of the Lord stands in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. The temple of the Lord is God's habitation on earth. And so the psalmist, grammatically, the psalmist could be saying, the hills are where I will find help. I'm looking toward Jerusalem. I'm looking toward the temple. I'm looking toward God's house. But secondly, grammatically, the psalmist might be identifying the hills as the reason why he needs help. Now, this is difficult for us to grasp because we don't travel by foot. But back in the psalmist's day, we're going back a couple thousand years, 3,000 years, in his day, very common to travel by foot. And so the hills are a, are a place of danger. The hills are menacing and threatening. The hills are known for unpredictable weather patterns. They're the hiding place for rebels and robbers. They're the hunting ground for wild animals. 
Their terrain is challenging and unforgiving, fraught with rock falls and other hazards. And so grammatically, we could go in one of two directions. The psalmist, on the one hand, might be identifying the hills as the place where he will find help. Or he might be identifying the hills as the reason why he needs help. Contextually, the second option fits better with the psalm. Just look briefly at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He's on rocky terrain. He's on uneven terrain. He is in the midst of the hills. Threats all around him. But here is his hope. Here is his assurance. God will not let his foot be moved. And so the hills are this place, this place of threatening, that they're menacing, they're daunting, representative of danger. We don't know what particular danger the psalmist is going through. All we know is he's speaking of these hills metaphorically, and he is acknowledging that as he surveys his life, he is passing through challenges, he is passing through difficulties. What challenges? We don't know. He doesn't give us any specifics. What difficulties? We don't know. He does not give us any specifics. But the important thing is this, that we grasp his question right there in verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Here's the question. From where does my help come? And so perhaps you've asked that question on occasion. Uh, It's quite possible you've been asking that question for a long, long time. Entirely possible you're sitting right there this very day, this Lord's day, and that question is running as clear as day, the noonday sun through your mind. From where does my help come? Section number two, the, the psalmist's answer. Verse two, my help comes from the Lord. Notice, it's all capital letters. Capital L-O-R-D, meaning what? It is God's divine name, Yahweh. I am who I am. The psalmist could have stopped there, but he doesn't. My help comes from the Lord. Now he qualifies it. He points in particular to one truth concerning the Lord who made heaven and earth. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Two facts in that curt statement. Two facts, truths concerning the origin of the universe. The first is this. The universe was created by the word of God. The second truth is this. The universe was created out of nothing. This is where the psalmist turns. He's looking up to the hills. His eyes are fixed on the challenges and the difficulties that he is confronting. He throws that question out there, undoubtedly a question that echoes throughout the years of his life. From where does my help come? He now gives his answer. My help comes from the Lord. And here's what I must grasp. He made heaven and earth. Why does he go there? He goes there because the simple reality is this. The power by which God created the heaven and the earth, the power that brought into existence the universe, that power is my help. Of all the things he could say about God, why does he choose to say this? 
The simple answer is this. It declares the very nature of God. It tells us in no uncertain terms that God is great. He upholds the universe by his word. He holds it together. God is the principle of cohesion in the entire cosmos. J.B. Lightfoot, God, impresses upon creation that unity and solidarity which makes it a cosmos instead of a chaos. God holds the planets in their orbit. He sends the rain to replenish the earth. He sustains the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He upholds the clouds in the sky. He brings forth every bud, every leaf, every fruit, every blossom, every flower. He gives breath to every creature. In him we live and we move and we have our being. I am in distress. The hills all around me. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And here's what I must never lose sight of. He made heaven and earth. Therefore, the power that brought into existence out of nothing, the entire cosmos, that power is my Psalmist could have stopped right there, verses 1 and 2, right on to Psalm 122, but he doesn't stop there. We now enter into the longest section, portion, the third section of the psalm, and in my opinion, the most fascinating portion of the psalm, verses 3 through 8. And what we need to notice right at the outset, beginning in verse 3, is that there is a dramatic shift. In verses 1 and 2, a little grammar lesson, stay with me just scared half of you off with that suggestion, a grammar lesson. In verses 1 and 2, he is speaking in the first person singular. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Second verse, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But beginning in verse 3 through to verse 8, He is no longer speaking in the first person singular. He speaks in the second person singular. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you. By day, nor the moon by night. Verse 7 The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8 The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, it is entirely possible that when the psalmist penned this song, he anticipated and he desired that it be sung responsively. And so the people would sing verses 1 and 2, and then perhaps an individual, a priest, someone would respond with verses 3 through 8. Entirely possible. But it doesn't change the reality of the psalmist's experience. The man who actually wrote the song, the man who actually penned the song, that intentionally he makes this dramatic shift from the first person singular 
to the second person singular, why? The psalmist, beginning in verse 3, and this is crucial to our understanding and application of the psalm. The psalmist, beginning in verse 3, is trying to convince himself of what he has just declared in verse 2. It isn't enough to know that the Lord is my help. It isn't enough to know that the one who made heaven and earth is my help. The psalmist is now seeking to convince himself of that reality. In effect, in essence, the psalmist, he turns on himself. You, it's like he's now peering in the mirror. You, 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 you. Do you understand what you have just said? Do you really grasp what you have just professed, what you have just proclaimed? Do you really live in the reality of that wonderful truth that my help comes from the Lord, the maker, the one who made heaven and earth? And he's convincing himself of this in verses 3 through 8. And the emphasis is on that word keep or keeper. We find it six times, verse 3, second half of the verse, he who keeps you, will not slumber. Verse 4, first half of the verse. Behold, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Two references. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And the sixth and final reference instance, verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. That verb, that term, to keep, means to preserve. It means to guard. It means to protect. And so the psalmist, as we peer into his soul, he is engaged in this, in this conflict, if you like. He recognizes his situation, the hills, menacing and threatening. He throws out that question which he has asked many times before, from where does my help come? He states what he knows to be true, cognitively, intellectually, he confesses it. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Do I live like that? Is that the reality I live in when I find myself in the midst of those hills? Here is the bridge he is building between these two. My help comes from the Lord, the the maker of heaven and earth. That means he is my keeper. My keeper. You know what he's doing? He's preaching at himself. You ever done that? We probably don't do it enough. He is preaching to himself. He's letting himself have it. Both barrels, fingers pointed right at himself. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? You've stated it. Big deal. Anybody can state it. You've claimed to believe it your entire life. But do I live in the reality of it? And now he comes at it in these verses from three different angles. Building this relationship between who God is, his help, and the fact that he is the psalmist's keeper. He comes at it from three angles. Angle number one, verses three and four. God made heaven and earth, and so God does not sleep. Verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you remember the story of the incident involving the prophet Elijah? 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 18, thereabouts. And Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown 
so to speak, on Mount Carmel. Ahab, his wife Jezebel are there. There are two altars, look exactly the same, sacrifice, kindling. And Elijah says, right, you 400 prophets of Baal, you go first. Call down fire from your so-called God, and let's see what happens. What ensues? Oh, there is an orgy of self-mutilation as they cry out and they call out. And Elijah, he doesn't hold back. He lets them have it. He begins to ridicule them. He says to them, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, meditating, or he is relieving himself. He's in the loo, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Absolute ridicule he is hurling at the 400 prophets of Baal. God, our God, does not slumber, and he does not sleep. Never distracted. You think of Greek mythology, if you've ever done any reading in Greek and Roman theology, and that pantheon of gods of Zeus and Poseidon and Athena and Apollo. They're vain, petty, moody, and unpredictable. They're humans, basically, with superpowers. That's all they are. They're humans with superpowers. And they are in competition one with another, seeking to influence the course of human history. And one will gain the upper hand while the other is distracted, and then the other will try to get his way, her way, while the other is engaged in other business. Our God is not distracted. Our God does not sleep. Our God does not slumber. He is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the implication for the psalmist is what? Right there at the outset of verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let your foot be moved. As he navigates, as the psalmist navigates the difficult terrain of life, God will keep him from slipping. God will keep him from falling. He's preaching at himself. Do you really believe it? I need help. My help comes from the Lord. He made heaven and earth. He is my keeper. He does not sleep. He never gets caught off guard. He's never taken by surprise. He is with me and he will keep my foot from slipping. He comes at it from a second angle. Verses 5 and 6. God made heaven and earth. And so, God does not leave. Verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. Fascinating statement here. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Do you know what he's referring to? His shadow. So if we were to walk outside right now, There we'd see our shadow. I can see my shadow up here because of the lights. And whatever I do, wherever I go, what's right there? My shadow. That's his point. The Lord, the one who made heaven and earth, he's like my shadow. Can't get rid of him. He is always there, like the shadow on my right hand. What is the implication? Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Some literalists, as they've explained, sought to explain that verse, they have, they have interpreted the psalmist as meaning that God will protect you from sunstroke, right, during the day, and God will prevent you from being moonstruck during the night. That was a popular notion some centuries ago when people believed that the, the moon's rays could actually have a negative effect and influence upon people. Uh, That's where our English word lunatic comes from. Lunatic, lunar, moonstruck, the moon's rays. That's not what the psalmist is saying. 
The psalmist is simply affirming, yes, God made heaven and earth, meaning what God does not leave. He's like the, my shadow, the shadow on my right hand. And whether it, be, whether it be during the day or whether it be during the night, whether it be as I face the dangers of the day or the dangers of the night, the perils of the day or the perils of the night, 24-7, it does not matter. I can't get rid of him. He's my shadow. He is with me. And he does not leave me. He comes at it now from a third angle. Verses 7 and 8, God made heaven and earth, and so God does not change. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Going out, coming in. It's an expression referring to the entirety of life. Our going out and our coming in. And the psalmist has this assurance that God will keep his going out and his coming in, not just right now at this very second, but look at what he says at the end of verse 8. From this time forth and forevermore. God is eternal. Therefore, God is immortal. Therefore, God is immutable. Therefore, God is faithful. Whether it be today, whether it be tomorrow, whether it be a thousand years from now, whether it be into endless eternity, he has this absolute assurance that God who is eternal does not change. And he will keep his going out and his coming in forever. What is the implication? We've touched on it. It's brought out in even greater depth back in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now steady on and proceed with caution slowly. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Really? Joseph spent how many years in jail? How was God keeping him from evil, all evil? Well, he languished in that dungeon. Naomi buried a husband and two sons. All evil? God kept her from all evil? Really? Rachel died in childbirth. Jonathan died on a lonely hill at the edge of a Philistine sword. David wandered for years in the wilderness, chased by a psychotic king. What does the psalmist mean? As I read this statement, it doesn't seem to coalesce. It doesn't seem to be borne out in biblical history. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. This is where we must proceed with caution. The psalmist is speaking of ultimate evil. Ultimate evil. There is something far worse than losing your health. There is something far worse than losing your spouse. There is something far worse than losing your reputation. There is something far worse than losing your money. And there is something far worse than dying, losing your life. What is the loss of these things in comparison to an eternity in the furnace of hell? What is the loss of these things in comparison 
to an agony that never ends, a pain that never ceases, a sorrow that never subsides, a horror that never lessens, and a torment that never departs. What is the loss of these things in comparison to the loss of the one at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore? The psalmist is speaking of the loss of of ultimate evil in comparison to ultimate good. And he is lamenting, he is lamenting the loss of ultimate good. And he is saying that when we are fixed on God, when we are one of his people numbered within and among his flock, he has this assurance, we have this assurance that he keeps us. He keeps us from all evil, ultimate evil, ultimate loss, the loss of him. And he keeps our, our life. He keeps our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Friend, do you understand that there are eternal destinies staring you in the face this very day? Two eternal destinies. And you are but a breath away from entering one of them. There is life and there is death. There is heaven and there is hell. There is salvation and there is condemnation. And the difference between the two is simply this. What think you of the Lord Jesus Christ? What think you of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Have you been to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been humbled for your sin? Have you begged forgiveness of God on the basis of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? And is your hope and your assurance and your faith now fixed entirely upon the accomplished work of the Son of God. Two destinies, life and death, eternal destinies, life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and condemnation. That is what the psalmist is speaking of. That is the terms in which the psalmist is thinking. Ultimate good and ultimate evil. That as he traverses the challenges and the difficulties in life, and as he is encompassed by these hills, these dangers, he cries out, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now I'm going to preach to myself and let myself really have it and, and, and hammer home the implications of this. He is my keeper. And it does not matter what comes in this life. It does not matter what I face in this life. It does not matter what I experience in this life. I have this ultimate hope fixed on the creator of heaven and earth that by that power by which he created the entire cosmos, he keeps me and he preserves me. And he protects me for that salvation to be revealed in the last day. Now, as Christians, we need to shed New Testament light on this. And that's why I ask you to find 1 Peter chapter 1. And you pay attention to what Peter says here, beginning in verse 3. Look closely at his words, his expressions. And in your own mind, bridge, build that bridge, construct that link between Psalm 121 and what Peter now celebrates, beginning in verse 3 of his first epistle, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. And so the Spirit of God has taken hold of me. I have taken hold of Christ by faith. I am now, positionally speaking, relationally speaking, I am one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I have been born again by the Spirit of God, and I now have a living hope. What is this living hope? Verse 4, to an inheritance. An inheritance is something we receive in the future that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Look at the next word, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The hills, daunting, menacing, various trials. We rejoice in the midst of those hills. Why? Because we know where our help comes from, from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And notice three things that Peter emphasizes in the fifth verse. Let me give them to you by way of questions. Number one. How is God guarding us? Right at the outset of the verse. By God's power. The power by which he brought forth the entire universe by a mere word. The power by which he raised us, spiritually speaking, from that position whereby we were dead in our trespasses and sins caused us to be born again, whereby we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented and turned from our sin. By that same power, God guards us. Question number two, what is God keeping us for? By God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I thought I was already saved. Christian, you're only partly saved. You're awaiting the consummation of your salvation. The day is coming when we will be fully and finally saved like the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly. We will be conformed to his likeness and to his image. Right now, only partly saved. We are waiting the consummation of our salvation. And God is keeping us by his power for that day. Third question is this. What is God keeping us from? Oh, I do not want us to miss this. What is he keeping us from? No mention of the devil. No mention of the world. Jesus overcame these enemies of the cross. Look at what Peter says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. What is God keeping us from? Do you know what he is keeping us from? Unbelief. Do you know what we need to be preserved from, protected from, more than anything else in our sojourn here through the hills? Our own unbelief. We need to be preserved from ourselves. And it is God, by his power, who guards us, 
keeps us, preserves us, protects us for that day yet future, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he does so how? By sustaining our faith. He sustains it. He keeps it. He upholds it by his power. And what is the result? What is the fruit? Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now I want to hammer home gently, hammer gently, at two points of application from all this. We've understood the psalmist. We know where he's coming from. We've interpreted the text. We've shed the spotlight, some New Testament light on that Old Testament text to bring it this side of the cross and its fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I want to ask two questions by way of application. The first is this. Do you pray in the midst of the hills? The psalmist is praying here. That's what he's doing. First two verses. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is praying. Do we pray when we find ourselves in the midst of the hills? Do we seek the Lord's help when we find ourselves in the midst of the hills? I'm going to make four suggestions here. Now, suggestions too soft. Four affirmations by way of questions. First is this. Do we ask God for patience to wait? Do we seek his help? Do we ask him for patience to wait? Thomas Manton, if God lays on you a great burden, Cry out for a strong back. If God lays on you a great burden, cry out for a strong back. Do we pray for his help? Do we ask him for patience to wait? Deliverance only comes fully and finally in glory. I uttered a few statements last Sunday. I'm going to repeat them now. The first is from Paul Martin. The Christian life always ends well, but it does not always go well. God's purpose, and the sooner we realize this, oh, it is extremely difficult. But the sooner we realize this, the better. God's purpose is not to change our circumstances and relationships to make us happy. God's purpose is to use our circumstances and relationships To make us holy. Do we pray for patience to wait? Second affirmation by way of a question. Do we ask God for strength to resist? Resist what? Resist sin and temptation. Difficulties will tempt us to sin. They will tempt us to seek help elsewhere other than God. We will lose ourselves in escapism. I'm not referring to substance abuse or illicit sex primarily, although, yes, they do fit. Gratuitous shopping, channel surfing, internet surfing, just mindless life and existence. Escapism from the realities of life. Oh, difficulties will tempt us in that direction. They will tempt us to lash out at others. They will tempt us to despair. They will tempt us to complain, grumble, and murmur. They will tempt us to doubt God. Do we ask him for strength to resist? Thirdly, do we ask God for grace to grow? 
We need to ask him to increase our faith, hope, and love in the midst of difficulties. We need to ask him to purge out some sin. Use those difficulties to purge sin from the soul. We need to ask him to make us more usable in the midst of those difficulties. Friend, you never ever in life have to pray, Lord, use me. Never. We have to pray daily, Lord, keep me usable. And that is what he is doing in the difficulties. Lord, keep me usable. We ask him to make us more compassionate as a result of our own distress, to make us more compassionate to others. Third affirmation by way of a question. Fourth affirmation by way of a question. Do we ask God for faith to trust? To trust him. To wait on him. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We pray, we ask him for faith to trust him. He is not surprised by anything. He is not confused by anything. He is not overwhelmed by anything. One of the underlying themes I love in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, in the three books that have been made into movies anyway, they're very apparent. Just an underlying theme, a subtle theme, is revealed in the, in the life of that little girl, Lucy. She's the youngest of the group, isn't she? And Lucy's always distressed about something. Lucy's always crying and wailing about something. Lucy's always upset about something. But of the four, Lucy is privy to something, tremendous privilege. She often catches glimpses of Aslan that no one else sees. Did I really see him? Was he really there? Did you see that? Did I really see him? Was he there? Did did, did you see that? And C.S. Lewis is transmitting a message to us through that. He is teaching us that in the midst of our distress, in the midst of our difficulty, God is there. And he is working all things according to his purpose, to his plan, in the midst of and through our distress. I dare say here's one of our greatest problems. It's this. We want the God of miracles. Amen, hallelujah, who doesn't? We want the God of miracles. We're not so keen on the God of mysteries. Take it or leave it. We want the God of miracles. Solve the problem, do something right now, help me. But we don't get as excited about the God of mystery. And yet he is the God of the incomprehensible. And he is a God who chooses more often than not, not to make us his privy counselors. He is a God who chooses more often than not, not to reveal his ways and his purposes and his eternal counsels to us. He is a God who simply asks us and commands us to trust him. Trust him. That he is the maker of heaven and earth and he knows what he is doing. And he has a perfect plan culminating in that appointed day yet future, that salvation which is yet to be revealed, the culmination, the summing up of all things in heaven and earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, he asks us to trust him. Do we pray? Do we ask God for faith to wait on him? Faith to hope in him? Faith to trust in him? Second point of application by way of question is this. Do we preach? In the midst of the hills. Do we pray? That's verses 1 and 2. Do we preach? Not to others. We're good at that. Do we preach to ourselves? In the midst of the hills. Verses 3 through 8. 
That is the psalmist's dilemma. He has no problem accepting that wonderful truth which he articulates in verse 2. He has no difficulty believing it cognitively. He celebrates it. He sings it undoubtedly. He knows who God is. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. His problem is what? Living in the reality of it. I dare say many of us are just like the psalmist. We know the creed. But we can profess it. We can recite it. We know who God is. We declare God is sovereign and we get all excited. Oh, yeah. The question is this. Do we live in the reality of it? Do we preach his sovereignty to ourselves day by day? Do we convince ourselves of the implications of who he is, the implications of that for us, that he is the maker of heaven and earth, therefore he is our keeper? At times our struggle is related to our thoughts. We have deep-rooted ideas of how we think God should work. Deep, deep rooted ideas of how we think God should work. When His ways don't match our ideas, we implode emotionally. We think something is wrong with God. We think something is wrong with us. And we succumb to doubt and despair. At times, more often than not, our struggle is related to our feelings. When difficulties arise, here's the chief reason why we need to preach to ourselves daily. When difficulties arise and the hills are insurmountable and we know we need help, our emotions take over. And our emotions blind us to objective truth and objective reality. Years ago, I remember flying in a caravan, single-engine plane, 10 seats, in Angola, from Luanda to Lubongo. I was sitting up front with the pilot. His name was Jay, good friend. And about halfway through that journey, we entered this thick fog, cloud, haze. I don't know what it was. And I sort of said, well, what now? He said, what do you mean, what now? Nothing now. I keep doing what I've always been doing. I follow the guidance system in this plane. There are dials there. There are instruments. They tell me my how high I am, what's coming, which direction I'm heading in. It's all right there. He said, one of the greatest dangers a pilot can make when he finds himself in a thick cloud, a thick haze, is to begin to rely on his senses. He'll end up upside down going in the opposite direction. He'll re- it will lead to all sorts of potential hazards. Friends, that is what we do in the Christian life. Far too often, when we find ourselves in a thick fog, far too many of us decide to navigate by our feelings, and the result is always disastrous. Our feelings will always lead us in the opposite direction. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is fixed on objective historical fact and objective biblical promises, not subjective emotional feelings. Christian, preach to yourself daily and drive home those objective historical facts, those objective biblical promises. In the case of the psalmist, what was it? God is the creator. 
He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. Eternal, immortal, immutable, faithful. Now I'm going to let myself have it. I'm going to preach to myself. I'm not going to throw what I know to be true to the wind and start following my senses and my feelings and my emotions because they'll lead me down the garden meadow. They'll lead me away from God. No, I'm going to preach to myself. And I'm going to drive home the significance and the implications and the applications of what I know to be true. He is my keeper. And he doesn't slumber. Never takes a nap. He never leaves me. He's the shadow on my right hand. And he is eternal. And so I know where, from where my help comes. I know He has saved me by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a historical, objective truth. I know I am one with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. I know I am saved by God's mercy, God's mercy alone. I know God is faithful. I know He has promised to to, to keep me. That Jesus has said, nothing will snatch you from my Father's hand. I know that He is guarding me, preserving, protecting me. From, for that day, that day of salvation, yet future. And I preach, and I preach, and I preach. Objective truths, realities. Objective promises. And in the midst of that haze, and in the midst of that fog, when our knees buckle, and our shoulders begin to slump, and the darkness weighs heavy, we echo the psalmist's cry, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And we have this wonderful assurance. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our Father, we take that as our prayer this day. We ask you by your Spirit, acknowledging our dependence upon the Spirit of God for illumination, we ask you by your Spirit to give us understanding. May your word be alive to us. May your promises be real to us. May your workings in history be real to us. And may you be the object of our faith. We thank you for this great hope. We praise you for this great assurance. And we ask you now to receive the thanks. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we offer it. Amen.